You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Every person on the planet lives within a culture. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Because culture is all of the shared characteristics of a people group that encompasses things like where we live, even when we live. It encompasses things like religion, and politics, and language, social behaviors, even food and cuisine. And so, for instance, we live within a Western culture. But more specifically, we live within American Western culture. And even within that, I've had the chance, I don't know about you, but I've lived on both coasts and in the Midwest. And in my experience, I can attest to the fact that within each of those regions, there are distinct cultures. And so the challenge with this is that the longer we live in any given culture, the less that we are actually aware of the ways in which that culture influences the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we behave in almost everything. And so I want you to think about it like this. I remember, and I'm sure many of you will too, just a few months ago when we were all working together to try to turn this ministry center into a space that would work for worship services. And within that, I remember a couple of days that I spent priming and painting because, let's be honest, that's all I was qualified to help with on the construction front. And I think there was question even about that. But what sticks out to me the most about that experience was coming back in here the next day, opening these doors right here, and then just being overwhelmed by the fumes from the paint. Now, if you've ever painted a room, you've had this experience. While you're in the thick of it, while you're in the room painting, it's after a while, it's like you barely even notice the smell. But then if you leave for just a few minutes and you come back into that room, it is overwhelmingly obvious. And culture is like a freshly painted room. The longer that we're in it, the less that we actually notice the ways in which it influences what we value, the ways that we think, and the manner in which we behave. And this is something to be especially aware of as followers of Jesus. See, the reality is there there are more good things about the culture that we live in than I can count. We all have an endless number of reasons to be thankful that we get to live in this imperfect country. And there is so much about American culture that is absolutely at odds with the way of Jesus. And one of those would be what is sometimes referred to as our Lone Ranger culture. Deeply embedded in our country in particular is a glorification of individualism. And you can see it in our stories, in books, in movies. It's why we love stories about like one man, one woman being able to defy a huge all by themselves. It's so deeply ingrained in our culture. And this cultural phenomenon has its roots in the American ethos of rugged individualism, which traces all the way back to our nation's founding and even the pioneering spirit that drove westward expansion. 
And I would argue that the, this emphasis on personal responsibility within that is so, so, so good. But the ideas of things like independence from other people, ideas like self-reliance, and the notion that needing others is somehow a sign of weakness, all of those, also embedded in that culture, stand in opposition to the message of the New Testament and Jesus' desired culture for his disciples. We've said this over and over and over again, and we will keep saying it. God created you and I for community. He designed us for deep relationships with other people. And so where our culture has romanticized and glorified the idea of walking through life on your own, meaning walking through life on your own strength, your own determination, your own merit, Jesus invites us into a life of walking with others. And so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to Luke 24. Luke 24, there used to be a day and age in churches when a pastor said that, you would hear all these pages. Now you hear maybe just no, just the sound of a swipe, maybe, on a phone. But Luke 24 is where we're going to be. And uh, this text is going to become one that we are well acquainted with over the next few weeks because we're really going to spend the majority of this series in this one story. And so before we really dive into it, we need to set the stage for the events about which we are going to read. And so if you don't know, Luke 24 is all about what happened after the resurrection that first Easter morning a couple of thousand years ago. And so a group of female disciples, including Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, the text says, who if you don't know, James was the half-brother of Jesus, so it's also the mother of Jesus. They came to the tomb, and they found it, to their great surprise, empty. And they were understandably perplexed, as verse 4 says. And in the midst of their confusion... Two angels appear to them and tell them that Jesus is not there because he had risen from the dead. And so these women finish that conversation. They run back and they find the 11 apostles and they tell in this larger group of disciples and they tell them everything they've observed and everything they've heard. And unfortunately, the apostles initially rejected their testimony. In fact, verse 11 says, these words seemed like nonsense to them and they did not believe the women. Now, for you ladies, that probably sounds like more of the same. Because for some shameful reason, all joking aside, women have always had to fight in order to be believed. But if we look more closely, this actually goes much, much deeper than that. The apostles did not reject their testimony just because they were women. Maybe that, that was a part of it, I can't say for certain, but it wasn't just that. The primary reason they rejected this claim was because it sounded crazy, just like it would to you and I. In fact, Thomas, one of the apostles, rejected the witness of everyone, <laughs> men and women alike, saying that he could never believe unless he could touch Jesus' scars. So he said, man, unless I can put my fingers in his scars, I will never believe this. And until he had that experience, he could not believe. And so the reluctance to believe the resurrection is understandable because the claim sounds crazy. For instance, just imagine for a second that you were told that someone you knew to be dead had come back to life. For instance, the prolific actor Lance Reddick just died a few weeks ago. 
And he played great roles in shows like The Wire and Fringe and Lost and Bosch. He's also in the new John Wick movies. And it has been reported in every single news source and confirmed by both his family and by his team that on March 17th, Mr. Reddick sadly died of natural causes. So let's just say that we're all sitting around the dinner table together, okay? And we're catching up on the day, and I say to you, man, did you, did you guys hear the news? Lance Reddick rose from the dead. You would be like, that sounds less likely than a QAnon conspiracy. And you know what? And if that hits you too close to home, lighten up. <laughs> that resistance would be a fair response because typically when people die, spoiler alert, they don't come back. And so as a result, each of the apostles failed to believe this news. But Peter may be the lone exception because apparently there was like just enough about what Jesus had predicted beforehand that Peter had to at least see the tomb for himself. And so he runs off to check what these women had said. And when he arrives, he finds it just as the women said. It's empty. And this perplexing situation serves as the backdrop of everything that comes next. So look with me now at Luke 24, beginning in verse, we're just going to look at 13 and 14 today. It says, now, the same day, so it's still Easter, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. Now, while it may not seem like it, these two disciples, one of which we are going to learn in a couple of weeks, was named Cleopas, and the other was, remains unnamed, but some actually speculate that it was Luke who wrote this account. He didn't want to draw attention to himself, and so he just left that second name empty. But regardless, these two disciples find themselves in a surprising sacred space that was filled with transformative opportunity. See, these two disciples find themselves in what Richard Rohr and others call liminal space. Now, the word liminal comes from the Latin word limen, and that word means threshold. And so this is the place that Rohr says that we are, quote, betwixt, a word I've never used, betwixt and between. There, the old world is left behind, but we're not sure of the new one yet, end quote. And so it is the actual and uncomfortable space and time in which you shift from one phase to another phase. And these feelings of liminality can be caused by especially transitions in life, like when we move from adolescence to adulthood, or when you graduate from college and enter the real world fully. They can be brought on by moving from one home to another, one city to another, one state to another. It can be brought on by a job change the death of a loved one, the end of a relationship, or a global pandemic that alters the world. Ruth Halley Barton says, liminal space usually induces some sort of inner crisis. You have left the tried and true, or it has left you, and you have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. And this is exactly where these two disciples find themselves. Think about their experience. These two would have felt spent on virtually every front, emotionally, physically, spiritually. 
They had given their lives and they had given their faith to the hope that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. After years of waiting, he was the one who would finally make all things new. But then, just as they come to Jerusalem, everything is building to a head. They watched as Jesus, their Messiah, was arrested, tried, and tortured, and nailed to the cross that took his life. And as they watched Jesus breathe his last breath, they felt their own faith die with him, knowing that there was nothing they could do about any of it. And then they wake up Easter morning, and these women come in the room, talking about how his tomb's empty and that he's alive. So they're confused at best on this particular morning. And this is a very similar space that so many of us have found ourselves in, maybe for different reasons, but we found ourselves in this same space the last few years. We have watched as <clears throat> the world has and continues to change in more ways than we can count. We have watched as people and systems that we believed that we could trust have shown themselves to be wholly untrustworthy. We've grown so accustomed to isolation that despite longing for connection, many of us are finding it deeply challenging to actually experience it. And, and, and lest we think that this is like just anecdotal or something that maybe we just have an, an abnormal number of broken people in our little church, just so we don't think that, please know this, the Cultural Research Center just conducted the first national post-pandemic study of Americans' worldview, and it was released just this week. And I'll give you the big idea. The pandemic has shaken the foundation of faith in the United States in particular. A couple of examples. Do you know that the study found 15 million fewer Americans are attending church now than in the beginning of 2020? 15 million. That's more than the combined metro populations of both Salt Lake City and Los Angeles. So just think about those images you've seen of LA traffic. All those people used to go to church, they don't anymore. Furthermore, there's been a 4% drop, that's 12 million people, a 4% drop in the number of Americans who identify as Christian anymore. Prior to the start of the pandemic, 85% of born-again Christians described themselves as deeply committed to practicing their faith. Today, that number has dropped to 50%. Only 50% of people that claim to be Bible-believing Christians say that they even practice their faith in any sort of serious way. Furthermore, there's been a 42% decline of Bible-believing Christians believing that they have a God-given purpose in life. Think about how depressing that is. That's, that's down by 20% in just three years. So, are you all glad you came to church to be encouraged by these numbers? Because listen, on the one hand, this is... Super concerning. The trajectory of the church in America was already in decline before COVID, but what we know now for certain is that it was all amplified by it. But the good news is, this liminal space that we are so prone to avoid due to the discomfort of it, it's the very space in which transformation takes place. When we read the scriptures, this is the very season of life in which God worked most deeply in Noah's life. 
in Abraham and Sarah's life, in Joseph's life, in David's life, in Solomon's life, in Hannah's life, in Samuel's life. Pick your person. The deepest healing experiences anyone in Scripture has always takes place in liminal space. And so as we're going to see in the verses to come, Jesus draws near when we choose to walk through these seasons of liminality together. So as we learn to suffer together, as we learn to celebrate together, as we learn to grieve together, to wrestle with doubt together, as we endure seasons of confusion and disappointment and fear together, two disciples discussing the most disorienting and disappointing experience of their lives became the sacred space in which Jesus did a healing work in them. And the exact same thing can be true for you and I. But in order for cultural moments like the one that we find ourselves in and difficult personal seasons that so many of us are experiencing or will experience, in order for this to be formative rather than deformative, because we've seen that before, where it actually does damage and harm to our faith, in order for it to be formative, it demands that we make the decision to walk and talk together. So this little detail in verse 14, together they were discussing everything that had taken place. That might seem insignificant, but the truth is, it's the context in which Jesus draws near. And so here's our big idea this morning, if you want to write this down. Jesus forms us as we choose to share our faith journey with a few others. Jesus forms us as we choose to share our faith journey with a few others. So last week, I talked about how time alone and affinity alone and conversation alone don't guarantee formative friendship. But I want to be clear about something. It also doesn't mean that they're at odds with it. Meaning like if, if our shared vision for formative friendship is nothing more than a cold formulaic dump of personal difficulty, that's not a super compelling vision. And so my point is just to continue to reinforce, you don't have to be childhood best friends for a relationship to be used of God to form your life. And what I would caution you against is the belief that you have to be in relationship with someone for years on end, that you have to know someone and understand someone inside out in order to be able to trust them enough to be vulnerable with them. If we wait for that, most of us may never enter into formative friendship. So time, again, conversation, again, affinity, again, those are good and great things that we should long for and pursue. And as we begin to take more steps into these types of relationships, know that the primary place that trust is formed is through someone finding the courage to step into the open and being met with empathy rather than judgment. And so what we're after is rich, deep, safe, and meaningful friendships centered on Jesus with the goal of becoming more like him. And they don't happen overnight. They are built over the course of a lifetime. And so here is what both the Bible and a couple thousand years of church history will tell us. Very few spiritual practices shape us more deeply than having a few trustworthy people with which to share our faith journey. 
let me say that again. Very few spiritual practices shape us more deeply than just a few trustworthy people with which to share our journey of faith. Here's what we have to see. Formative friendship is the fruit of that choice. That choice to come out of hiding, to come out of isolation, and to share your journey with others. And so as a result, formative friendship demands that we seek God for both the courage to step into the open and then the strength to stay there. And so it it doesn't matter how many people we surround ourselves with if we choose to hide from God, to hide from ourselves, or to hide from them. Now the problem is, there is this giant wall between where many of us are on the one hand and the formative friendships that we are after. And that wall is fear. Fear of vulnerability, fear of weakness, fear of the discomfort of being open and honest with another person, fear of judgment, what are they going to think, what are they going to say if I'm open and honest about this, fear of betrayal. I know all of those fears exist because every time we talk about this and then we do Q&A, it happened last week, there's a question about the safety and trust, and there's this deep fear of betrayal. And, and what I want you to know is that much of that fear is entirely understandable. It exists because of very real traumatic experiences that we have had. But here is the uncomfortable truth. That wall of fear is immovable. There's no life hack that you're going to find on some blog telling you how to get that out of your life. That wall is immovable. The only option is to desire what's on the other side so deeply that you are willing to scale the wall and step into the open with a few other followers of Jesus despite the discomfort of that choice. And so as we close, here's really what this comes down to. We have to long for transformation more than comfort. We have to long for belonging more than comfort. We have to long for companionship more than comfort. And so if you look at this and you think, man, I I don't think that I desire what's on the other side of that wall deeply enough to face the fear of scaling the wall and stepping into the open. I'm too afraid. Here's what I want you to hear. Admitting that to yourself and admitting that to God is a huge, huge step forward. So take that fear to God. Ask him to strengthen that desire. Ask him to give you courage. Ask him to give you strength. Asking for the courage that we don't possess is the first step in scaling that wall. Jesus forms us as we choose to share our faith journey with a few others. And so let's move toward that choice together this morning. Let's pray and let's ask for the courage to choose to walk together. Will you pray with me? Father, we continue to thank you that you have not left us or designed us to walk through this life alone. 
that is especially good news because walking through this life is so often so very hard. And so I thank you, Lord, that we are not designed to bear the weight of this world on our own. You have designed us for deep, meaningful relationship with you and a few other people in our lives. But as we have discussed, Lord, between where we are and that deep, meaningful relationship that we all so need and long for is just a mountain of fear. And Lord, you know where that fear has grown from. You know that it doesn't exist for no reason at all. It's there for a reason. It has protected us to this point in our lives. But as is so often the case, Lord, some of the things in our lives that start as protective actually begin to isolate and harm us. And so we thank you, Lord, that your perfect love, your word says in 1 John, casts out fear. Lord, we need courage. We need strength. Those are two virtues that feel lacking in many of our hearts right now. And so rather than pretend that's not the case, we just openly confess that to you. We are afraid. I am afraid of what these types of relationships cost. I thank you, Lord, that you receive that and that it's your desire to exchange courage for that fear. And so I pray that you would give that to us. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to give your life in our place for these types of relationships so that we could be reconciled to you, reconciled to one another. And so we just pray that you would lead us into deeper and deeper connection with one another. And we thank you, Lord, that you are not in a hurry with us, that you don't push and rush us, that you invite and invite and invite. We simply ask that you would help us to say yes. So why don't you just continue to sit with your eyes closed for a moment. Take just an opportunity to reflect.